that is a, a real thing that I feel, you know, that desire to push back against everyone who wants to diminish young Black people because there are a lot of people out there that don't want us to recognize and own our power. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Vermont author Kekla Magoon has been blazing new ground writing for children and teens, tackling topics such as racism and social justice in her books. She is now being recognized as one of America's top writers for young adults. This fall, Magoon was a finalist for the National Book Award for her new book for young adults, Revolution in Our Time, The Black Panther Party's Promise to the People. Earlier this year, Magoon received the 2021 Margaret A. Edwards Award from the American Library Association for, quote, her significant and lasting contribution to writing for teens, close quote. This is essentially a Lifetime Achievement Award that Magoon won at the age of 41. The ALA proclaimed, quote, Kekla Magoon's powerful prose and complex characters enrich literature for young adults by bearing witness to the trauma and triumph of the American Civil Rights Movement, close quote. Magoon's other books include X, a teen novel about civil rights leader Malcolm X that she co-authored with Malcolm X's daughter Ilyasa Shabazz. She also wrote How It Went Down, about the complicated aftermath of a shooting of a black teenager. Kekla Magoon also serves on the faculty of the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Magoon's new book about the Black Panther Party is a magisterial 400-page work that explores black resistance beginning with colonialism in Africa and leading up to the Black Panthers and even the Black Lives Matters movement. I began by asking her when she first became aware of the work of the Black Panthers. Well, part of why I write about them now is that I didn't learn very much about the Panthers when I was young. I studied the civil rights movement. I could recite the I Have a Dream speech when I was very young. I learned about you know the work of Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and other civil rights leaders. But nobody ever really talked about the Black Panthers. I knew they existed. I had heard their name, but they were always kind of pushed into this little sort of cobwebbed corner of, <laughs> of the history books and the, and the conversation about history. Uh, you know, I thought of this snapshot image that I think a lot of people have in their mind of the Black Panthers, Black men with guns and leather jackets. And it comes with this connotation, bad, scary, so scary, in fact, that we don't even talk about it. Right. And so I grew up with that impression of the Panthers. So I was incredibly surprised when I was in my early 20s and stumbled upon an article about the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program for school children, which operated in cities around the country for many years in the late 60s and early 70s. And I thought, what? This doesn't compute with my impression of the Black Panthers. All I know is Black men with guns, bad, scary. What is this about breakfast and school children? And that just sent me down a whole journey of, of learning more about the Panthers and trying to understand their work. And, you know, I came out of that process feeling really excited about what I had learned, but also really angry and frustrated that that history had been kept from me as a young person. And so it became part of my work through the novels that I write for young readers, as well as nonfiction works like Revolution in Our Time, to, to share that history with young people to make sure that, that it's not left out of the history books anymore. So when did you decide to write a book about the Black Panthers? Well, when I first discovered this article about the 
free breakfast program. I was working as a grant writer in Manhattan. So I lived in Manhattan for a long time and I, um, you know, I just stumbled upon it. And at the same time, I was working on my master of fine arts and writing at Vermont College of Fine Arts as a student. And I just knew that I wanted it to be something I explored in fiction. I mean, the, the, this, this sort of teasing question really took hold of me, this idea that I'd always had about who I would have been if I had been alive in 1968, like what I would have done. I would have marched with Dr. King. Of course I would. We would link arms and sing, we shall overcome and march. That would have been my role. And then the more I learned about the Black Panthers, the more I thought, oh my gosh, what if I'm completely wrong about who I might've been in that place and in that time? And that question really teased me and I found it really fascinating. Um, And so I began exploring the Panthers in fiction. And so I wrote a novel and it was in fact, my debut novel was um, set in 1968 Chicago. And it's about a boy who's 13. His father is a civil rights activist. And then his older brother joins the Black Panther Party. And so my character finds himself caught between this exact dichotomy, right? This nonviolent civil rights movement that we hold up as the ideal. And then this new and exciting, really dynamic community organizing project that comes to Chicago, the Black Panther Party. And he's trying to find his place in the movement, just like I, at that time, was trying to figure out how to reposition my own understanding of that whole era and and who I might've been and what kind of change was needed and what kind of change was right. Because I had always, you know, had a really strong belief and impression about that that was being gradually overturned. So my very first project was fiction. And I wrote a companion novel called Fire in the Streets that is in the same world in Chicago about a girl, Maxie, who's 14, who wants nothing more than to be a Black Panther and to serve her community. But there are challenges to doing that when you're a 14 year old girl. And so I explored that in fiction. And those books, fortunately, were well received in the young adult writing community. I won a few awards and was nominated for a few awards in relation to them. And teachers and librarians began using these books in their classrooms and in their schools. And I just kept getting this question over and over again. We are intrigued by this story. We are intrigued by these characters. We want to know more about the Black Panthers. This is grounded in real history that we don't don't teach and we don't understand how can we find resources that are appropriate for our teen audience that will help us teach and understand and talk about this material. And there wasn't much available at that time for a middle school and high school audience that would really explain who the Panthers were, where they came from, why what they did was important. You know, the big why is really kind of glossed over when we talk about this history a lot of the time, even among adults. And in fact, there wasn't a lot of material for adults that had been published um, in a in a mass market sense, right? There were a lot of scholarly books. There were some biographies and memoirs. There uh, were some beautiful photo essays, really, really striking photo essays just capturing the movement. But again, that's sort of a snapshot. It's a surface look at something that was really, really deep and meaningful and powerful and largely misunderstood, if not deliberately misrepresented. So I want to take this opportunity of having you here to not skip over the chance to explain to people. Um, Talk about the day in 1967 when the Black Panther Party first arrived at the uh, State House in California, in Sacramento, the incident that they were protesting and the rea- what they did and the reaction to them. This was their introduction to the American people. 
Yeah, so the Panthers were founded in the fall of 1966 by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, who were two students at Merritt College in Oakland, California, and they had been doing a lot of work in the community. Um, Bobby in particular had been doing a lot of work in the community with young people at a community center, and Huey was a very... Um, intellectual, you know, I want to sit around and debate and really understand these issues that we're dealing with um, kind of person. But between the two of them, they felt like, you know, we're, we're in this sort of ivory tower setting at this college, right? We can do all the, this work to get Black history education into the schools, but what is going on in the streets? What is going on in the community? How can we reach out and really do something right now and not just be talking about it and not just be waiting for change to happen the way that they perceived the civil rights movement was doing, right? We were waiting for the powers that be to come in and say, okay, you can have equality, you can have integration. They were like, what can we do in, with our own hands? And so the first thing that they did was they sat down and wrote their 10 point platform, which has you know 10 points on it, but the, the summary is they wanted land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And they had specific visions for how to come up to bring those things about. The main thing they were primarily interested in at the beginning was to prevent police brutality, which was a huge problem in Oakland and in a lot of cities around the country. And certainly throughout the civil rights movement, we have you know, much documentation of, of police brutality that was occurring. And so their solution was, hey, police have a lot of power in the community. They're armed. They're able to move freely, right? And often they catch people in a time and place when no one else is looking. And we don't really know what happens in those dark spaces. We don't know what happens in those alleys. What if we did? What if someone was watching when the police moved through the streets? And so that's what they did. They called it policing the police. They acquired legal weapons and they would ride in a car behind a police car that was patrolling their neighborhood. And if the police car stopped and got out and, um, you know, started interacting with the citizen, they would also get out with their legal weapons and their California state law book. And they would stand the appropriate legal distance away and observe what the police were doing. If the police behaved lawfully and arrested someone, took them downtown they would just go with the, go with them and bail the person out. So this was a peaceful protest, but it was underpinned by this demonstration of, hey, we're armed and we're here to protect our community. So it was always intended to be a peaceful protest, but as you can imagine, it was not well received by the police of Oakland because they wanted to do their own thing. They wanted the power that they had. And so they began harassing the, the Black Panthers and trying to essentially um, prevent them from doing this policing of the police that they were doing. So one of the ways that the state overall decided to approach this was the Mulford Act. So um, the Mulford Act was a piece of gun control legislation that was, in fact, supported by the NRA in, the, in those days um, that was put forward deliberately to outlaw some of the guns that the Panthers were using to do their policing of the police. And so as soon as that law would go into effect, the Panthers would no longer be able to patrol the community and watch the actions of the police. They could watch them. They just couldn't do it armed. And that was a big deal to them. So can, they can I just the ask this Mulford ask, how does how did it? Uh, surgically disarm the Panthers and not everyone else who the NRA uh, wants to have, be able to have guns? Well, <laughs> um, it, I mean, it would have disarmed them as well. Um, what what exactly did it do? Um, so at the time, uh, so the, the Panthers, they could carry... Um, you could carry like shotguns in the car. Um, you could carry various other weapons in the car. And so there were, they, they outlawed um, the 
the types of weapons that the Panthers were carrying, you could no longer carry them in a car. You could no longer have like loaded weapons in particular places in particular ways um, that were most helpful to the Panthers. I mean, I think, you know, the, the NRA's stance has evolved over time and I don't know that much about them specifically apart from, um, apart from, you know, the sort of this moment. Um, but they, they at the time were not quite as, um, uh, one note about their um, their advocacy for for gun ownership. They had a, a more, I would argue, a slightly more measured way of approaching it. But also, right, this this particular um, law was tinged with racism, and so that factors in, right? Um, I, I don't know that they would support a similar law today. It's hard to say, <laughs> right? right? Uh, but there have been uh, numerous ways over time that gun laws have. S- targeted people in urban communities, which is a euphemistic way of saying black people, right? Um, they have they have um, worked hard to protect the rights of, you know, white people in relatively rural or suburban environments and, and worked hard to curtail the rights of, of people in, um, in black communities. So, and so, so all point. of this leads to a very dramatic and high, much photographed scene at the State House in Sacramento. And what happens there? So they, um, so the Panthers were doing a couple of things uh, when they went to Sacramento on May 2nd, 1967. They were going to protest the death of Denzel Dowell, who was a young teen who had been killed by police officers in the nearby community of Richmond, uh, California, near Oakland. And they were going to protest the Mulford Act. And so they put their legal guns in the car. They drove north um, to Sacramento and they got out of the cars at the state house took out their legal weapons and prepared to go in um, to the state house to sit in the um, audience. There was like an observing balcony that you could sit in as a member of the public just to watch the proceedings of the state legislature take place. And so that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to go have a presence in the the proceedings and then to deliver a statement that they hoped would be carried by a lot of press um, about their goals and purpose um, and the the inherent racism in the law and the need for Black people to commu- collectively arm and defend their communities in a variety of ways, not just with guns. And so when they arrived at the State House, there were about 30 of them together. Um, uh, at the time, Governor uh, Ronald Reagan was standing on the steps of the State House <laughs> giving some sort of address and um, saw the Black Panthers coming and ran the other way. <laughs> And uh, all of the press, you know, kind of turned their cameras toward the the Panthers. And so they got a whole lot more press than they were expecting because the governor had been right there. And so they were followed into the building and it was legal. These weapons were legal. They were able to go in. Nobody stopped them. They just talked to the police officers. They interacted with the police officers. There are all of these amazing photos from all kinds of press sources, um, you know, of the Panthers just walking through the halls with their big shotguns, you know, because they weren't there to cause trouble. They were there to make a stand. They were there to engage in public, peaceful protest. The fact that they were doing it while carrying guns was definitely a statement and part of their purpose, but the protest itself was very, very peaceful. And so they, in fact, they they couldn't be arrested while they were there. They everybody knew, well, that you know, you're you're you have legal weapons. There's no, there's nothing stopping you from going inside, <laughs> even though it was making everyone uncomfortable. And so what ended up happening was that they walked upstairs, somebody gave them bad directions, either on purpose or by accident. 
and they wandered into the actual floor of the legislature. They were supposed to be in a viewing balcony for the public, and they ended up walking into this private space. So, of course, it was that was very alarming to the legislature, these Black men with guns that barged into the legislature. Um, and it was a complete accident on the Panthers' part but it got them even more attention and they were escorted out. And on the steps of the Capitol, they, Bobby Seale, the co-founder delivered a statement about, you know, the ongoing oppression that black people were experiencing and that the Panther, the Panther party had been created to, to stand against that and to defend the black community against police brutality and other forms of oppression. And it was a really, really powerful moment. The coverage was carried nationwide. I think for a lot of people, especially you know, white America, broadly speaking, that was a, a defining moment in, in creating this snapshot, this, you know, black men with guns, bad, scary image, right, came from these snapshots of, of these men who seemed very out of place in the halls of legislature, you know, according to people's expectations and, and, and beliefs and biases. And that same moment sparked a huge amount of admiration and excitement among young black people around the country who said, oh, my gosh, look at those guys with their guns and their leather jackets walking around scaring white people. Like I want in. Mm -hmm. And so that, that dynamic of fear on the part of white America and passion and excitement and engagement on the part of black America was a, a real catalytic moment for the movement. And soon after that, it was no longer a local Oakland organization. It was a national movement for self-defense and community engagement and empowerment, political education, healthcare, right? All kinds of things the Panthers did that people for the most part don't hear anything about because that snapshot just takes so much precedence. I wanna talk about some of those other initiatives, the self-help initiatives. Um, give us an idea of how um, far-flung the Black Panther Network became, how many cities it appeared in, and also these self-help networks that were essentially what most Black Americans came to know them for. Yes, the Panthers were a very, very community-based organization. They published a newspaper, a weekly newspaper that was distributed around the country and ultimately around the world. By the end of their, or sort of at the, at the height of their, their power, I, you could say they were active in about 40 cities nationwide. They had free breakfast programs for school children on the logic that, you know, there are hungry children in our communities. They need to go to school and they need to be able to learn, but they can't do that if they're just hungry, right? So show up at the community center, have some breakfast and then go to school. And for a lot of those kids, that was their main meal of the day. And so they were feeding thousands of kids, tens of thousands of kids every week around the country. And they founded health clinics, providing free universal health care to black communities. At least one of those community centers, I mean, at least one of those um, health clinics still exists today in Seattle. And some of the others may also still exist, but they've been kind of repurposed and, and folded under other nonprofit umbrellas. I mean, this was lasting powerful change in these communities where there was no access to healthcare or limited access to healthcare, where medical discrimination was affecting people. They ran candidates for office they published all kinds of poetry and art, um, really powerful, striking imagery uh, from the movement, very, um, very dynamic and provocative images. Their language is very dynamic and provocative. They considered themselves the vanguard of a revolution, but that revolution was not meant to be violent. That revolution was meant to be a, a revolution of ideas, of 
political understanding. Remember, at this time, we're talking about the late 1960s, we did not teach Black history in schools. We didn't have Black History Month. People didn't know much at all about the history of systemic racism in this country because they weren't taught about it. We're taught about it now, although we're definitely in a moment where there's pushback against how we're taught about that now. But 60 years ago, we were barely taught at all. And so the Panthers were actually part of the movement to get Black history education into higher education at the college level and then on down to high school, middle school, elementary school. They are the reason, are certainly part of the reason why we are able to even have these conversations that we're having today. And, you know, so there were so many, so many programs that they had. They had a program, one of my favorites is this program called SAFE, and it was um, a senior escort program. So, you know, we're so used to things like online banking, right? We're used to our cell phones. We're used to the fact that you can get a check in the mail and deposit it on your phone. You couldn't do that in 1966. You had to take that check and you had to walk it to the bank. And if you didn't have a bank account, you had to cash the full amount and you had to walk home with all of that money in your pocket. And so if you were an elderly person with a fixed income, perhaps a social security check that would come once a month on a day when everybody knows your social security check is coming because everybody's social security check is coming, right? There were a lot of thieves in Oakland that were specifically targeting elders uh, you know, on that day. And so you could easily lose your whole month's income. And so the Panthers would go wait outside the check cashing place, escort the elders home so that nobody could bother them and make sure that they were safe and protected. And, you know, to me, that's a really, really powerful and small but big act of of community support and really understanding what people are going through, right? It's not just, you know, you don't have a lot of money. It's that, oh, you need to protect the money that you have. And it's, oh, you know, it's not just you know, we don't have healthcare. It's that we actually need to reframe the whole way that people talk about health in relation to Black Americans, right? And and that conversation is still ongoing, but they were at the forefront of it. People weren't having that conversation to that degree before the Panthers came along. So this is, of course, the part of the story that you never learned when you first heard about scary men uh, with guns. Um, it strikes me that your book is almost a one-stop shop uh, for the kind of history that the Panthers were talking about needing to be part of a curriculum. Do you think of this, of your book, Revolution in Our Time, as sort of carrying forward that mission that the Panthers originally were there, you know, tried to address? Absolutely. I mean, I I, I hope that it does. That's certainly part of the aspiration of the book is to 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 do this thing that the Panthers wanted, which was for young Black people to understand their history, to understand the power that we have in our communities, to understand the power we have as young people to take action in the world. The way that we have been taught history is so limited. The way that we have been taught history is so white-centric, and the way that we have been taught history is so adult-centric. It strips young people of this feeling of agency. We don't talk about all the teenagers that were the engine of the civil rights movement. We talk about Rosa Parks. We talk about Dr. King. I mean, we hold up Rosa Parks in the first place. She was chosen for her role in that protest on purpose because she was an elderly, respectable, I mean, she was middle-aged, but she was an older, respectable woman who people could rally behind. That's We didn't choose Claudette Colvin, who did the exact same thing years earlier in an organic way because she was a young teenager, right, who wasn't going to bring that aura of respectability. And so the, that that influences the way that we teach about this history. So with Revolution in Our Time, what I did 
was I said, okay, we need to learn about the Panthers. We need to learn about what they did, who they were. But in order to understand what they did and who they were, we have to understand all of American history as told through the lens of blackness, which doesn't get told very often. And so the first several chapters of the book, we are looking back to the time when the first enslaved people were brought to this continent against their will and what each step of trying to achieve freedom in this landscape has looked like. The Black Panther Party was just one example of a movement for freedom that Black people have undertaken in this country. And it is happens to be one of the few that are both recent <laughs> enough um, and documented enough. And um, I don't want to exactly say replicable enough, but the because I don't think that it's replicable for a variety of reasons, but the, the, the exact issues that the Panthers were grappling with are the exact same issues that we're grappling with today in terms of police brutality, oppression, access to employment, access to housing, access to healthcare. These are all the same issues that we're dealing with 60 years later. And so I, I, to me, it's a more relevant example of Black protest and Black resistance than looking back to, you know, rebellions on slave ships, looking back to rebellions within enslaved communities against the slaveholders, looking back to, right, anti-lynching campaigns. That's a precursor to what we're looking at in terms of police brutality, of course. But this is, the pan this, the Panther movement is emblematic of so much that came before and so much that has happened since. And so within the book, I definitely focus on the Panthers, but I look at the history that led up to them and then the history that has come out of them and what has happened in the, you know, almost three decades since, I guess, four decades since they essentially ended and what the, the echoes of their movement are, what the impact of their movement has been and how young people today are building a movement of their own. And what does that look like? And how do we how do we not feel like we're reinventing the wheel all of the time? How do we acknowledge that the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the movements that are taking place today in this landscape are standing on the shoulders of this previous movement or standing in the shadows of this previous movement? However you want to look at it, we are not starting from scratch. And so I think that the young people who are leading those movements today deserve this history and they deserve the opportunity to wrestle with it and to take it and make it their own and to be empowered by it. Kekla, I want to go to a question at the heart of your story in this book, but it's the story of the Black Panther Party, and that's the issue of violence. So the Panthers show up on the scene in the late 60s, really at the height of the uh, time of Martin Luther King, who is very much kind of a an apostle of nonviolence. Talk about the relationship between the Panthers and Martin Luther King and that whole question of violence versus nonviolence. There are a number of ways to approach the conversation of, of, about violence and what that means and what that looks like in the landscape of the civil rights movement. I think that we tend to hold this up as a dichotomy. We say there was nonviolence and there was violence as if those two things did not coexist as if those two things weren't um, intricately linked. The power of the nonviolent civil rights movement, the power of nonviolent resistance is that it is nonviolent resistance in response to extreme violence. So when we talk about the nonviolent civil rights movement, and we often use that phrase, the nonviolent civil rights movement, when we talk about that, we are in some ways diminishing the power of it because that movement was steeped in violence. 
that was violence that was happening to protesters. That was violence that was happening at the hands of police. That was violence that was happening at the hands of white supremacists in the community, right? We're talking about buses that the Freedom Riders rode that were burned. We're talking about people pulled off and beaten. We're talking about trying to march across a bridge in Selma, Alabama and getting beaten with batons and sprayed with fire hoses and chased by police dogs in Birmingham, right? We're talking about a movement that was steeped in violence. And what was powerful about the act of nonviolent resistance was that you are standing in the face of violence that could take your life and you are not flinching, you are not fighting back. There was incredible power in that. That was the purpose of that movement, but you had to be trained to be a nonviolent resistor because as we know, and as our laws reflect, it is human nature to fight back when somebody is beating you with a baton. It is human nature to defend yourself. We have laws that protect people when they commit acts of violence in self-defense because they say, I'm, I fear for my life. I fought back. That is something we understand. It is something we codify in our laws. But when push comes to shove in this country, who is allowed to act in self-defense and who is not? That question <laughs> falls directly on a color line. You can see it in every instance of police brutality, right? An officer says, I feared for my life. And that justifies almost anything in this landscape legally, right? It justifies almost anything in this landscape. We see a young black teen who was killed by a police officer and we say, well, what did he do that caused this, this person to take violence, you know, to, to commit violence against him, right? We have in this country, a way of seeing violence that is always caused by black people. No matter who is doing the violence, we say that violence was caused by black people. White, a white police officer hurts a black teen. Well, what did the black teen do, right? It's always, always, always laid upon the black people. And so that is how we have seen the Black Panther Party for many, many years. It was when it was founded, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. That was the name of the organization. They later shortened it just for simplicity more than anything else. And because they moved away from the policing the police once the Mulford Act was enacted and you couldn't do the things you could do in California elsewhere in the country already. So they were moving toward community organizing. They were moving toward community service. They weren't focusing and emphasizing guns as a form of self-defense anymore. And so they shortened the name. But that, that, that phrase for self-defense was integral to their founding because how long can you let people beat on you before you fight back, just as humans, how, how long can you stand in the face of that? A decade, a century, several centuries, right? We've endured enslavement, we have endured segregation, we've endured lynchings, we've endured this ongoing police brutality, this ongoing oppression. Like, why haven't we fought back all this time? Well, we have, but why, why when we teach this history, right, do we, do we keep couching it in, well, nonviolence, 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 that was the answer, that was the answer, that was the way. If you stray from that, you were wrong. But that's not how people are. That's not what it's like to be a person. You want to fight back. And so that whole movement that we celebrate, that nonviolent movement that we celebrate was a deliberate departure from centuries of us trying to fight back in various ways, some of which were violent. And so it, it is one of the things that I think is important about studying this moment is to really understand why the Panthers chose to arm themselves in that time and place. It wasn't to cause violence. It was to prevent it. 
because if you have a gun, somebody's less likely to attack you. That was their whole belief. Um, and it turned out to be more or less true, although the federal government certainly, um, you know, proved us wrong about that. They said, all right, you're going to arm yourself. We're going to come in even harder. And they founded the this counterintelligence program to essentially destroy the Panthers. And explain, explain what happened to the Panthers and specifically what COINTELPRO was and what it did, the, its impact on the Panthers. Yeah, so so it's short. The shorthand is COINTELPRO, and it's short for Counterintelligence Program. And this was founded in the 1950s by the FBI as a, essentially as an anti-communist program. They wanted to surveil and disrupt and monitor movements that they felt were. Um, related to the communist movement and that and everything about the civil rights movement fell under this heading from the FBI's perspective. So they surveilled Dr. King, they surveilled all of his colleagues, they surveilled Malcolm X, they surveilled, you know, um, the Panthers, the, the majority of the counterintelligence program was targeted at the Panthers. There was also a major um, portion of it that was targeting the American Indian movement. And, you know, it was all about how do we stop these people from organizing in ways that in in the FBI's view were going to undermine America sort of and undermine capitalism and undermine the way that the system operates and and so of course the civil rights movement very much wanted <laughs> to undermine the way the system operated because the system is founded on racism the system is built with racism as an essential component and so we did hope to disrupt the way that things operated. So um, in the 60s, the, the main program um, was, the main counterintelligence program was surveillance. They had um, some misinformation campaigns. They would send false letters back and forth. Again, this is before email. This is before text messaging, right? This is, this is you know, you write a letter by hand, you put a stamp on it and you put it in the mailbox. Like this, that's how a lot of this communication happened. It was expensive to make long distance calls, right? So people didn't talk on the phone as much as we do now. There were all, and I, I you know, I provide all this context because young people don't have that sense of what it's like to put a stamp on an envelope and stick it in the mailbox. Um, but I think we, even as adults forget, we forget what it was like, you know, to, to, to communicate in a time before the internet and communicate in a time before cell phones and whatnot. So, you know, sometimes your only communication with someone was a handwritten letter mailed across the country and you would just exchange correspondence that way. And so it was very, very easy for federal agents to create false letters that, you know, would, were attempting to stir up trouble, to threaten each other, to um, cause people to distrust each other. So there was a, a huge misinformation campaign as part of the counterintelligence program. Um, their purpose, their purpose with the Black Panther Party in particular was, and there are numerous memos that are now available under the Freedom of Information Act that, that document what they did, but they, um, their goal was to prevent uh, Black nationalist, they called them black nationalist organizations, but essentially any civil rights group or black power organization, they wanted to prevent them from working together. They wanted to prevent them from consolidating. They wanted to prevent them from gaining membership. And in particular, they wanted to prevent what they, and this is a quote, the rise of a black messiah. And what they meant by that was another Dr. King, somebody who was a really powerful orator who could bring people together and move people. Another Malcolm X, who was another really powerful orator who could bring people together. They wanted to stop that type of leader from coming to power within the black community and within the black landscape. And so, um, you know, one of the people that they tapped as a potential black Messiah was Fred Hampton, who is the party leader in Chicago, the Illinois, um, Illinois party chairman. And 
you know, ultimately, and this is this is well documented, <laughs> ultimately the Chicago police and the FBI conspired to assassinate him um, to prevent him from using his exceptional orga- organizing skills and his exceptional orator oratory skills to 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 gather people and to build this movement. And you know, he would have probably been one of the future leaders of the Black Panther Party and could have been another Dr. King or Malcolm X. And and he kind of was, but he was only 21. So he didn't have the chance to live to the ripe old age of 39 like they did. So Um, I want to talk about um, your larger body of work. Um, You were recognized uh, recently with the Margaret A. Edwards Award from the American Library Association for all of your work which at age 41 is quite a thing to have a Lifetime Achievement Award, which is essentially what that is. So uh, congratulations. Um, You wrote in an essay last year, quote, what if we skip the part where white writers magnanimously present the much needed black characters and move straight to the part where the industry welcomes more black creators, close quote. I wonder if you would talk about your own experience as uh, an author of color addressing issues of race. Sure. So the context for that quote is that there's there's a, a discussion within children's literature about the need for people who come from a particular group or background to write about those experiences. So we have a, a great many books about the civil rights movement that have been written by, you know, white people who didn't experience it, but who, you know, feel the history is important and want to bring life to it. And that's valuable. It is. But because there were so many people doing that work, it has been harder in some ways for somebody like me, a black woman writing about civil rights to get our stories told and published. And so it has been, it's part of my work. It's part of a lot of writers of colors work to advocate for change within the industry, to advocate for opportunities for writers of color to tell their story. So a a book like Revolution in Our Time about the Black Panther Party was, you know, something that I felt it was important for me to write as a Black woman. And, you know, I certainly wasn't alive in 1968. I'm not writing about a personal experience of the history, but I am learning this history and understanding this history through this lens of being someone who moves through the American landscape with black skin. And so that colors the way that I understand this history, the way that I internalize the history and the way that I turn around and tell the story. And so to me, it's a really powerful opportunity to be telling black history as a black woman in this country. And so for me, it's part of what I what I value in the world. I want to be, for lack of a better word, an activist, but I'm not the person who marches and protests. I'm not the person who makes signs and is loud, right? I am really good at writing. I'm really good at using language. I'm really good at pulling ideas together. And so I choose to use the skills that I have to advance the things that I believe in, advance the causes that I believe in. And for me, it's really important to be able to do that. And it's important to help carve out opportunities for other people to do that. And so the further I progress in the industry, the more reputable, I guess, I become <laughs> as a result of these awards and a result as a result of many publications and, and, and critical acclaim, I feel that I then have power to invite more people into the landscape. It's part of why I teach to try to share what I know and to try to inspire and empower other people to to use their writing skills to to make the world a better place for you know 
for the <laughs> for the sort of corny way of putting it, but that is a, a a real thing that I feel, you know, that desire to contribute, that desire to be part of a bigger conversation, that desire to push back against everyone who wants to diminish young Black people, because there are a lot of people out there that don't want us to recognize and own our power, that don't want us to have a space and a voice in the world. And so the best thing I can do, I think, is to model the ability to do both of those things. Like I take up space. This book is 400 pages. It will be on your shelf and you will notice it, but it also carries the weight of the history and it carries the, the, the power, I think, to inspire young people to say, Oh, I see myself in this and I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure out how to use my voice, whatever way that works for them. Your book and your books are coming out at a time uh, when books are being banned, they're being pulled from school libraries. There's talk of burning books openly by political leaders. What do you think is going to happen to this book and your other books? And have any of your books already been singled out in this new wave of book banning? And I should say yeah. specifically books dealing with race are at the epicenter of this current moment. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the that's the message. But I think you know a lot of books that just are simply featuring black characters and about black people are being um, are being targeted. Some of my books have appeared on some of the lists of books that are being banned and books from different communities that are being pulled from library shelves and things like that. Certainly, um, but it's not necessarily the ones you'd expect. <laughs> it's not necessarily Revolution in Our Time because that book is just coming out. But it's you know it's a middle grade book I wrote about boys in the summer, you know, having fun in Indiana where they live. Like it's that it has nothing to do with you know with with race and racism apart from the fact that the characters are black and you know moving through the landscape as black people. So so it is a more insidious attack on diversity in literature, I think, than some of the news is covering. And, you know, but even on its face, right, at the face value of, hey, we don't want books about race and racism to be shared with teenagers and children, you know, that's an incredibly problematic approach to literature in general. I mean, it's, it, it's mind-boggling in some ways. I mean, it, it, it as as a black person, like it, it, it baffles me to think that that people think that they can curate sort of their experience of the world to that degree. Like you, you, you don't ever want your child or yourself to encounter anything that's different from what you already know and already expect. You don't, you what? Like you can't imagine you know, having to deal with something difficult like racism, guess what? All the black children in the country are going to have to deal with racism in some way. It's a very privileged mindset to say, well, I don't want my child to, to have to think about or understand racism. I don't want any children to have to think about or understand racism. We'll just take the books away and they won't know. That's not true. It's, it has no bearing on reality. It is, it is, it's about power. It's about restricting the narrative. It's about trying to revert the way that we tell history to the way that we used to tell it when we didn't talk about the Black Panthers, when we didn't talk about Black history at all, but it isn't just Black history, it's American history. We can't, you can't talk about the history of this country without mentioning that slavery was a thing. It's impossible. You can't, you can't without just skipping a whole bunch of things and it's all embedded in the history. So I think that very quickly it, it will 
run into a lot of problems, <laughs> like the, you know, sort of you t- if you carry it to its logical conclusion. But in the meantime, it's going to cause a lot of stress and it's going to be a lot of conversation and a lot of pushing um, and fighting and struggling with school boards and with legislatures. And it's it's frustrating to say the least because there are so many things that we can be doing with our time and with our words and with our work. Um, well, what does it, you know, for it, shelf space? <laughs> when we read and watch that books by Toni Morrison, you know, a towering figure in American literature, a Pulitzer Prize winner, that she has been singled out, that Beloved, you know, one of her most famous books is being pulled, that when we read that the state of Texas, uh, which, incidentally, the largest publisher of school textbooks in the country, Texas, has passed a law saying there can be nothing taught that makes people, students, um, I'm paraphrasing, feel bad. Um, How do you fight to keep space for telling the stories that you tell? It's in some ways not a new struggle because books have always been challenged books have always been banned there's an entire wing of the american library association that's focused on you know confronting and responding to book challenges and you know so this is work that librarians have been doing this is work that teachers are doing this is work that classrooms right are undertaking you know i really give a lot of credit and and props and power to the teachers and librarians who are on the front lines of this and having to deal with the parents and the school boards and you know sort of the individuals who are coming in and raising these questions i i think that you know fundamentally it, it it's all this skewed perception of what it means to be free and have freedom and a skewed perception of what power is and how to use it because i think that there's, there's a, a multiplicity of views in the world. There always has been. There's multiplicity of voices in the world. There's truth. There's fact. There's all of these things that show up in all of these books. And, you know, to say, you know, because I don't like what's in this book, no one can read it is not freedom. That's not who we are as a country. And of course, who we are as a country is very complicated and steeped in bias already, But fundamentally, the people who are coming in and saying, no, you can't, you know, have this book in your in your library. No, you can't teach this book in your classroom are the same people who would say, but you can't come into my house and say, I can't have this. You can't take this away from me. I need this. Right. So so we we it comes back to this question of who is allowed right to be free, who is allowed to stand in self-defense, who is allowed to put their narrative out there. Right. It's all very, very steeped in bias to you know, to to imagine all the black parents in the country coming in and saying, you know, well, we don't want to teach, you know, about white people anymore. <laughs> like, what would that even look like? Can you imagine? <laughs> you know, and and but that's how it feels to us to say, okay, we're not going to teach about any white military heroes for the rest of time because I don't like war and I don't want my children to learn about war. You know, like what, how does that, how is that going to fly, right? Are people really going to say, oh yeah, that's fine. Clearly war is bad. We shouldn't talk about it ever. There are so many complicated and difficult things that we talk about. I don't want my child to feel bad because racism is a thing in our country. Are you going to not, like, are you going to rush them by, you know, the person sitting on the street because you don't want them to feel bad. They have a home. I don't know where the line is drawn. 
right? Like, how do you curate this experience for yourself that is that takes away any possibility of you feeling bad, or any possibility of you feeling empathy for what other people are going through? That that doesn't feel like a good way to live to me. As I read uh, your newest book, Revolution in Our Time, um, if you stripped out dates and of some of the historical names, I could easily think I was reading about today. There, this is, um, you know, black organizations rising up in response to the killings of black youth, typically black young men. What do you hope that activists today, be they supporters of Black Lives Matter or just people who support racial justice, what do you hope that they come away from reading not only this book, but your other books as well, in their understanding about this moment that we are in right now? I think two things. I think the the sense of at least two things. I think the sense of collective power, like the sense that we are just all small people. We do our little things. We live our little lives. And often I think that that is intimidating because we feel like we can't make change. We feel like the world is the way that it is. And we, you know, what, what could I possibly do as one little person with a Twitter account, right? Like what, what can I do um, to actually make change in the face of these huge issues that we're facing in the face of racism, in the face of bias and, you know, police brutality, like how can I actually make any kind of difference? And I think that that mindset prevents us from standing up sometimes and doing the little things that we can do that are part of the bigger landscape. Um, so I hope that by seeing the story of the whole party, right? This isn't a story about one leader. This isn't a story about a few people who made a change. This is a story about hundreds and maybe thousands of people who came together to do a thing that was really important that they needed to do. And most of them did it in small ways. Like I went, I went every day and I served breakfast. Like that was some people's entire experience with the Black Panther Party. Like a lot of us could do that, right? Um, some people made signs, some people helped with the newspaper, some people helped with the health clinic, some people just donated money, right? Like there was, there was, there's all these little things, whatever your skill set is, whatever your resources are that you can do to be part of the movement. And I think that that really comes across in learning about the Panthers and how sort of small and and day to day a lot of the work really was. It's not, you know, the big, big heroes at the podium, like the March on Washington that we see, like that's not the civil rights movement. That's one shining moment that we hold up, but it's not what it was. It was showing up every day at the lunch counter <laughs> and sitting there until you got arrested. Like that's what it was. And a lot of us have that power, but we we don't think we do because we hear about Rosa Parks and we think, oh, I have to be this big famous person who's, who has biographies written about me. And so, so that sense of collective power, that sense that all the little people among us, you know, have the power to be part of it. And then the second thing is just the youth leadership component that, the, you know, the median age of Panthers was 19. These were young, young people that were doing this work. And, you know, my readers will, for the most part, be teenagers, although I think it has crossover potential for a lot of adults to enjoy this book as well. Um, you know, but I think it's really important that we not think that you have to be a grown adult to do all of this work that you can be six-year-old Ruby Bridges and you can show up and desegregate a school, you know, like you can be an activist at any age and with whatever skill set you have. And, and, um, and to me, that's a really, really powerful message to remember that, you know, I think of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King as these grown-ups, and, you know, they were both killed at age 39. That means that the bulk of their ministry took place in their twenties and thirties. I mean, these were not old people. These were young people. They were considered young upstarts in their day. And now we revere them and we look at them and like, oh, Martin Luther King, you know, he was this 
this powerful person, but no, he was a young upstart in his day. Like that's what he was. That's how he was viewed by the establishment, certainly by the FBI and by, you know, white America. And, and so why can't we be those people? Right. You know, (laughs) why can't we raise our voices and say, all right, like I'll be a young upstart. Like I'll, I'll make a difference in the little way that I can. And so I hope that people will, will understand that the history is still, still going, that it's still living and that we can be part of it. Well, Keklo Magoon, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation and congratulations on all the acclaim that your work is getting. Thank you. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.